man. I'm going in my happy space now. Think happy thoughts now, man. That music just like makes me. Yeah. Brings it in zen-like state. Mm, Because you know what this is? This is the 16th of March, 2016. This is the 33rd episode since we've been doing it. This season. This This is our sixth season. Yeah. Yeah. We're approaching 100 total episodes since we started this in 2009. I don't know the exact number, but we're getting close. 2009 was a long time ago. It's my first year here at Iowa State. And you agreed to do this. This that's mm-hmm. 2009. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Barack Obama's first administration. Mm-hmm. Oh. And now it's not going to be him. It definitely won't be him. Yeah. That we can say for sure. Mm-hmm. It was another Super Tuesday. For some people, I don't know why I'm getting political. <laughs> I don't I just, know why either. It just—it's it not my jam. Well, just want to acknowledge the loss of Mark Rubio. Yeah, right? he yeah, pulled out. Yeah. So anyway, mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything to the soybean pest podcast. No, it doesn't. Because we will—we will do this regardless of who's running for. We hope office. Yeah. We can't be stopped by some federal election. Well, if I live in Canada, then. We may have to do it over Skype, so. Oh, no. <laughs> to our one listener. <laughs> the reason that is so funny to us is that I just had the most frustrating experience with Skype. It is such a pain. Yeah. Oh. But let's get on to, you know, you don't want to. It's, it's just, it's not out of the box ready, all right? It should work like you answer a phone, you, you know, and it just it, it works. It does. And it didn't for me. Okay. It didn't for me. And it didn't for the other six people on the conference call. And we ended up using phones. And I was like, why didn't we do that 20 minutes ago? But look, this is not what this is about. We got stuff to talk about. Yeah. We got, let's let's talk about the insect pests and the the environment. Yeah. And how 2016 is shaping up. How, talk to me about degree days because this is an unusually warm. Yeah. Well, for those that don't know, uh, we have, I'm involved with a, larger group of extension faculty and staff called the crops team and the crops team has uh, basically got a a new website Mm -hmm. and one of the features on that website is a is a news feed called icm news which people have been familiar with for a very long time it's gone through three or four different iterations and um, it's a basically online newsletters that can get pushed to your email a new feature that has been added to the website is something called icm blog and so we started a blogging feature um, over the winter where people can, within the crops team, can report more informal updates. You know, it's okay. not quite so, so methods and material. Team, sorry to interrupt. The crops team, that's the dozen or so field agronomists? Yeah, we have 11 field agronomists and at least that many faculty and staff on campus. Plus, there's just a lot of people that are involved in the periphery that work on farms um, hmm. They work on campus with different programs like manure, pesticide, manure so, groups, and pes- pesticide safety groups. So you're tapping into the hive mind that is sort of extension, yeah, field crop people. Yeah, and, and so this blog is a new feature, and it's something that I've kind of done on my own in the past, but I'm glad we're kind of bringing it in together as a crops team blog. Is, is this going to take the place of your blog? Yeah. So yeah. you're not going to be, oh. Yeah, so um, an article, or a, I guess or whatever you want to call it, a blog post that I um, generated yesterday was looking at growing degree days. And so we all know that plants 
and insects base very predictably or their, their growth is based predictably on accumulating degree days or temperatures. And so I was just thinking this has been... Insects are cold-blooded. Plants are cold-blooded. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, really they, they grow based on accumulating degrees. And so, you know, this, this spring has been so different than the last couple summers. And so I was thinking, in my mind, this I was spring like... spring has been different than the last couple springs. Yes. Summers, but... Okay. So the last couple of years have been very different. Um, yeah, I think like 2012, really hot and dry. 13 was maybe a little bit more normal. 14 and 15, in my mind, had cooler, wet springs and generally just not so interesting when it comes to insects. You know, the insects, I think, kind of suffered because of some of those cold and wet spring conditions. And so I wanted to try and back up my, my poor memory with some actual data. And so, yeah, I thought I'd try and do that. Like, right. it seems like it's warmer than it has been the last couple of years, yeah. but, you know, maybe it was just my failing brain. Maybe it's like that frog that's in the pot and they just keep, you know, you know this Mm-mm. story? You put a frog in a, in a pot of water and then you just turn up the temperature slowly. And it, if you do it slowly enough, the frog will boil to death because it doesn't sense the change. Instead of trying to get out of the pot? Yeah. Oh, no, I've I don't know if that's that. true. You've never heard that? No, that's cruel. Anyway, I didn't create that. Anyway, anyway. so um, for those that don't know about this resource at Iowa State Agronomy called the Mesonet, Ooh. it's a huge climate and weather data resource, yeah. and you can generate all kinds of information. Some of it is based on weather stations that are spread throughout the state of Iowa. Others are based on just you know precip and other things that are going on mm-hmm. on a more large scale. And so one of the things of many things that you can ask is just looking at growing degree days or accumulated temps at different locations. And so what I did just to try and see, you know, how different the summers were, I took a couple of locations that I thought were should be very different just based on location. So I looked at Decorah, Ames, and Burlington. So that's kind of northeast, central, and southeast. Mm-hmm. And I looked at growing degree days um, for the first part of the season, I'm looking at a, a base of 50 degrees. So you have to have at least 50 degrees in order to accumulate any temperatures and a max of 80, 86. And this is generally what most people would think about when they're thinking about corn as far as growing degree days. So that's a pretty familiar concept. And so I just use those cutoffs. And what I found out when I graphed these yesterday is that we're about a month ahead of uh, accumulated degree days of uh, in 2016 compared to 2014. And so it's hard for, we, we tend to do this lately, but I have a couple of graphs that I can show Matt here. Yeah. And I can um, link my blog that shows these graphs. These graphs are on the blog. Yep. And so um, we're about a month ahead yeah. as, as far as temperatures yeah. um, compared to about two years ago. I just thought it was really interesting. So just to tell our listener what uh, I'm seeing, in 2014, we had not really accumulated any degree days by the same time. Mm-hmm. Virtually in nothing until kind of mid-March um, was, to the beginning of April. And that was across the, the all locations that you summarized. Uh, this year, 2016, we've accumulated, um, yeah, we've accumulated degree days at all locations. Yeah, and Burlington, as of yesterday, had about 90 degree days. Which, which is where it would be in like in April. 
Yeah. So oh, there's important benchmarks coming up for degree days for insects. And you think about a falfa weevil generally oh. can start moving around 200 degree days. Yeah. And so those farmers that have alfalfa, they're going to be weevils that mm-hmm. are actively feeding on maybe smaller alfalfa plants than they normally would. So this could... So the damage that they could do could yeah. be greater. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it has implications for management. Yes, exactly. Oh, this is really interesting. Yeah, I don't think I appreciate how how warm it's been. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've enjoyed just personally, well, it's warmer. I don't have to wear a coat. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of shocking. Uh, I did hear something. So I, uh, not to jump ahead, but I was at our multi-state uh, soybean entomology meeting in Raleigh, and I was talking with entomologists, uh, what, through all, throughout the country, but mostly it's, you know, east of the Mississippi. Uh, Where soybeans grow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's Iowa, right, but. Uh, North Central and Southeastern United States. And there was somebody from Kansas and mm-hmm. uh, Nebraska, but there's a lot of people from the South, and they were saying that, you know, the, uh, the weather was so warm that they had they had a lot of corn planted, which was tragic because, I don't know if you've been following this in the news, uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, or no, I'm sorry, Louisiana, Mississippi, parts of Arkansas suffered some tremendous flooding mm. over the previous week. Oh, where they wow. got something like, you know, was it 12 inches of rain in less than 24 hours? Wow. And Hashtag climate change. Isn't that what you said last week? Yeah, right. right. Well, and this is one of the, the products that's thought to come out of a changing climate mm-hmm. is you get these very intense periods mm-hmm. of rain yeah. where it just sort of falls all at once. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's a lot of flooding. And, and as a result, those cornfields that were planted you know, may have to be replanted. Oh, yeah, definitely. So this is a challenge, right, for yeah. farmers. You know, yeah, it's warm, but... Is it too wet, and what's you know what's going to happen mm-hmm. going forward? It's hard to predict. Yeah, and from a few of the experts around Iowa State and other places, keep saying that maybe it might be a warmer, drier summer than the last couple summers. Mm-hmm. And so I also think about that being not necessarily better or worse for insects, but that drought-stressed plants tend to show more visible signs of injury compared to if they get adequate stress. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, going back to 2012 when it was really hot and dry, we had all those spider mites and, and all that kind of stuff. So that just kind of gives me you know, things to think about as far as, uh, yeah, upcoming maybe potential pest activity in, in corn and soybean in, in Iowa. So I just wanted to bring that bring that to your attention. I'll, I'll, I'll provide oh, the great. link in, in our uh, summary of the podcast. What else did you learn? Uh, yeah, so I uh, came back. We had a one-day meeting on Sunday, and then the – Soybean entomologist organized a symposium at the southeastern branch of the ESA's meeting on Entomological Society of America. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, for uh, and the symposium topic was resistance management for soybeans. So not just one pest, but sort of all pests. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was interesting. Um, so this is in the South, and the South is different in that they. Um, they really have to manage um, and think about insect pests. So here's a couple little quiz questions for you to see how well you and our listeners um, appreciate how things are different down the south. What percentage of soybeans are scouted? 
in the south. So there's they break this up by mid south and southeast. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it would be higher than our acres. What would you think? Like fifty percent, sixty percent. So the southeast. So Fred Musser does a survey of mm-hmm. uh, pesticide practices and uh, pest problems in that in the mid south and southeast. He estimates for the southeast, twenty to thirty percent of the soybeans are scouted, mm-hmm. but in the mid south, eighty percent. Mm. It's always kind of right. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> average the two. Yeah, yeah, not really, but but yeah. You said fifty. I mean, what would you say in the Midwest in Iowa? Less than twenty. Yeah. Less than fifteen percent. Hardly any. So it's shocking to me that that mid. They've got more is, problems. Well, if you had more problems and you had them, you know, year to year. Would you bother scouting, or would you just be like, "Yes, forget it, spray." It's all just, about timing. And kind of maybe you'd work that out. And I we just talked about how different these summers are. Oh, okay. This summer is so. Um, well, so we were discussing like why the difference, and the one thing that they said that um, that I thought was really interesting is, a lot of these farmers used to grow cotton. And cotton is scouted a lot more frequently than any other crop. So when they switch to soybeans, all of those crop consultants still were around. And, mm. and there was already a culture of mm-hmm. scouting. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the pests overlap, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was... Uh, it, what, what they were communicating, what I was uh, hearing is, it's not that there's some greater adaptation or use of IPM you know, in, in, the, in that Mid-South region, it's that there was already a culture of scouting such that when they did start growing more soybeans, that culture shifted over. And, um, yeah, I thought, yeah, interesting. I don't know. I uh, wish we were up to those kinds of numbers. Yeah, and, and as a result, they are related to that. I don't know if it's directly a result of it. How many applications of insecticide do you think they use in the South, on average? And, and soybean? Yeah. Oh. Three? 1.5. Okay. One point, and um, their number one pest in terms of insect loss and damage? Caterpillars. <laughs> All right. All right. That's, that's, that's weak. You want to know Corn, more? Corn Oh, look at you. Really? Oh, yeah. Just, ah! Up top, did it. Thanks. Yeah. Earworm, number one. Number two? Uh, Army worm. Soybean looper. Okay. And number three? Snake bugs. Yeah. Wow, you're oh. good. Yeah, those are the top three. Nice. Interesting, none of those are pests in Iowa. Right? I mean, I see them. But not not to the degree that Oh, not, not to the degree that I'm like, hey, you should do something about that. Yeah. So that, that was interesting. And... Hearing that based on some uh, estimates and numbers was uh, it, it helped me appreciate how different things are down there and mm-hmm. how you know they report repeatedly that things like seed treatments really pay off for them mm-hmm. in a way that we don't yeah. see it um, so much up here. Mm-hmm. We talked about that in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, some other things that came up: um, kudzu bug on the decline. Really? Uh, yeah, they were saying that they have a really hard time 
uh, where they've seen populations decline, and they have a really hard time maintaining populations in the lab because of a pathogen, Bavaria bassiana. Really? That is uh, pretty much... So this is a stink bug relative that uh, is an invasive in America, what, five or six years ago? Yeah, yeah. and it's spread throughout the the south. Um, I think it's gotten as far as Arkansas. I don't know if it's in, if it's crossed the Mississippi yet, but in places where it's been present over that five, six year period, they've seen a real decline. Uh, and they think it's because of this pathogen that's already huh. in yeah. North America, but it's starting to really take advantage of the kudzu bug. And they they care about it because, it, of course, it feeds on kudzu, which is a plant that we don't have in Iowa, but it spills over to soybean, and that's and so it's an economic pest. But they estimate about a 60% yield loss. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of looks like a little stink bug nymph. Yeah, in the southeast, they think they had like, uh, is that right, 5.5 million hectares treated? Or, wow. or at risk for this. And so that'd be like 13 or 14 million acres. Yeah. So that's the southeast. That's multiple wow. states. Yeah. Um, Crazy. Yeah. The other, but the big topic that came up uh, in our Sunday meeting and then in our symposium is uh, BT soybeans. And there were representatives from a couple different companies that talked about this. Um, and it so it's out. Caterpillar traits. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So these are. Uh, BT traits that are used in other crops like cotton and corn uh, and have activity against some of the, like corn earworm, which also feeds on soybeans. Uh, But they also have some new traits that uh, focus on other caterpillars that feed just on soybeans. Oh, wow. And um, it was interesting to hear both the entomologists, these university researchers talk about this, but also the companies. And I, I got to say, I, it's not a clear picture to me what's going on uh, or what, what's going to happen in the near future. They are anticipating, at least our colleagues are anticipating, that there will be some commercial use. Um, but how much and when is mm-hmm. kind of up in the air. And from the two companies that we're talking, it's not clear that all of them are on the same page. You know, one company laid out... Uh, that they're, they're, they're moving forward with this. Another one said, don't really see a need for it. Yeah. Did they uh, talk about refuge? There was some talk about refuge, uh, you know, but the talk of refuge is, is broader than we usually think of. Like, we think of refuge in this part of the country for a given pest using a, you know, a BT trade in that crop. So, like, refuge in a bag for rootworms and corn and a block refuge for what? Um, corn borer. Corn borer in corn. The problem with the pests in the south on soybeans is that they feed on different crops. So right now there's what's called a natural refuge. These pests get a refuge in soybeans from the BT that's used in cotton. And that's their refuge. But if BT soybeans are used, then that natural refuge could go away. And so are you putting the trait susceptibility at risk more by using, you know, these. It would seem so. And then the argument is, well, can you have a BT refuge in the soybeans? And what would that look like? And how much should it be so that you don't lose the traits ability to protect both in soybeans and in other crops like cotton? Yeah. So it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so one of the companies, here, here is some, I, I won't identify the company, I'll just, 
uh, although they, they spoke publicly at the meeting, um, they had some uh, economic data on insecticide um, um, use for the world. How much in billions of dollars is spent on insecticides for soybean production? What would you think? Hundred billion. Um, you're off by a couple orders of magnitude. <laughs> One billion. Two point two. Oh man. Which country is responsible for most of that? Brazil. What what percentage would you think? Like fifty percent. You are you, you're good. I will get you. You are good. It is Brazil. It's seventy seven percent. Wow. Eleven yeah. percent Argentina. Four mm-hmm. percent the U S. Mm-hmm. Um. And here's something that'll warm your heart. The estimate is that in the U.S., the soybean aphid is the highest valued pest in terms of insecticide uh, use. That doesn't make any sense to me. So this is, I think this is a function. They didn't go into the, the, where that data came from, but I think this is a function of, uh, yeah, we grow a lot of soybeans in Iowa, Minnesota, yeah. You know, even the Dakotas, and that is huge compared to what's in the South. So even though I just told you that in the South they spray, what, 1.5 times and they have all these pests, mm. the amount of soybeans they grow down there is a fraction of what's grown, you know, throughout the north-central region. Mm. And so one company, this is a quote, current U.S. foliar market for um, Lepidoptera pests does not justify the necessity for BT traits and BT traits and soybeans. So it's caterpillars. Yeah. 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 And that they uh, that company doesn't see this going forward. Mm-hmm. Another company acknowledged that yeah, there's some issues with resistance management, but there could be a could be a market for it. So interesting, interesting. Stay tuned. Yeah. But. Some some rumors were suggesting maybe 2018, 2019. That they'd have, that farmers would have access to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So probably nothing that is going to affect us up here. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it would be a change. It would yeah. be a, a dramatic change because that would be the first time that a, a GMO, a BT crop, a BT, I'm sorry, a BT soybean is available in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. And these have been used in Argentina and Brazil and, you know. Mm-hmm. We haven't had them yet, so that's hmm. kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, and some of these pests, like the soybean looper in Louisiana, resistant to a lot of different insecticides. Yeah. So I could see where there'd be a need for it, but anyway, not anyway, not going to come up here so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a bunch of other talk. Uh, Bob Cook out of Minnesota talked about the uh, in the soybean aphid and its resistance to insecticides and then the um, spider mites also being resistant to uh, insecticides and that being a function of people spraying for aphids and inadvertently getting resistant to spider mites as well. Um, Saw a big increase in that in 2015 over the previous years. Um, I think we've already talked about this, but it was... uh, it was interesting seeing him talk about that in light of everything else going on in the South, where they have resistance and laps and stink bugs, and yeah, we're starting to get a little taste of it here. So, 
in the North Central region. Hmm. Uh, other than that, um, there was one study from uh, a group, uh, George Kennedy at NC State, uh, where they were looking at uh, cross-commodity resistance. So this is the same insecticides used in different commodities. So in this case, the seed treatments used on cotton and on soybeans and a variety of other crops and thrips, those tiny little insects that feed um, um, with piercing sucking mouth parts on the surface of plants, these developing resistance to neonics and that being a function of the moving from one crop to another. So in landscapes where you grow both of these crops and both of, say corn and, or I'm sorry, cotton and soybeans, and both of those use the seed treatments, higher rate of resistance and cross-resistance yeah. to both imidacloprid and thiamethoxin. That was interesting. Don't know if we really have that issue here, but when you think about you know, those seed treatments, the active ingredients being used in a bunch of different crops. Yeah. And makes you get a little nervous, right? Yeah, that definitely. Something can move back and forth. Yeah. Well, I guess when it comes to corn and soybean here in Iowa, I mean, the seed treatments would be the same chemistry. It's, it's all neonics. So but I, we could don't see, really, oh. I could see how often that, I mean, I could see that that constant repeated exposures could drive something like that. But we don't really have a pest that feeds on both corn and soybean here. Right. Well, there's minor pests, but yeah. I mean, like stink bugs. Some of the caterpillars don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have thrips. I mean, we at a low thrips, level. Yeah. But, yeah. but we don't. Uh, I was thinking like the things that people would use those seed treatments for. Wireworms, grubs, seed corn maggot. They don't care. Yeah, but they're not real big. I mean, they're very occasional yeah. pests for us, but yeah. But it is something to be worried about, given that the same. Yeah. That was the alarm. Is that the alarm to say I've been talking too much? Yeah, we're just about 26 minutes. It's okay. Yeah. Should wrap up. Yeah. I'll post the The link to the blog. (laughs) We need our lunch energy. Oh, well, and it's also getting, speaking of warm, it's getting warm in here. Oh, great. Another summer of very warm office podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) Invest in some deodorant. For me, you're fine. Okay, okay. Okay, till next time. Yeah, Yeah, see you next week. Yep, Bye. bye.